Welcome to NREI's Common Area Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the award-winning editorial staff at NREIOnline.com. Let's jump right into this week's podcast. Hello and welcome to the Common Area with your host, David Bodemer. Let's dive into this week's top stories. Good afternoon, David. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you this week? Fantastic. I uh, Yeah, it's it's been a great week. I uh, Sunday, we, we helped out at my church like we always do and loaded this big, huge cart into the back of my car, and we were going to take off out of the pumpkin patch we were at. We had just gotten done for the evening, and the uh, cart wasn't quite as secured as I thought, and it went through my back window. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's those little things that... Uh, that for my own personal news, that's what's been going on. Uh, but the window was cheaper than I thought, so that was good. Uh, but I know we have different news to cover than that. So I guess yeah. we should get to that, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I, I don't think I have any exciting weekend news to report from last week I, myself. So um, I think we can just segue into the commercial real estate market. <laughs> okay. I think that's what everybody's here for. So let's do it. So what are we starting with? <laughs> So we've got three pieces to to talk about this week. One is we did a bit of an overview of what's going on with Bed Bath & Beyond and what that might mean um, for retail owners who have them as a tenant. Mm -hmm. Um, In addition, we did a piece that looks at some of the recent investment in casino, casino hotels, which used to kind of be sort of separated off from from even the, the regular mainstream hotel investment, but now um, it's getting a little more mainstream. So that was some interesting findings there. And then uh, the last piece is just a check-in on what's been going on with the investment in medical office buildings. All right. So we're starting with Bed Bath & Beyond? Yes. All right. So what's going on with Bed Bath & Beyond? So Bed Bath & Beyond, um, it's, I guess, the latest in our you know, part 10 in our never ending series <laughs> on what's wrong with this retailer. Oh, um, so, you know, Bed Bath & Beyond, you know, they're, they, they announced recently that they, and, and when we talk about Bed Bath & Beyond, by the way, um, they also own World Market, Bye Bye Baby, and Harmon Face Value. So um, they have a couple uh, of, of other chains that, that we're talking about when we're talking about the parent company. Yeah, I didn't know they owned World Market. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, part of their portfolio. I mean, I think if you, sometimes you see some of two or more of these tenants in the same center, so mm. it's a mm. particular interest. Then, if like the company is struggling, you're not just talking about Bed Bath and Beyond, but potentially two or three tenants all that are tied back to oh, the same true. company. Yeah. Hmm. But, but what they what they announced is that they're going to close sixty stores overall. That um, I forget what the breakdown is between between the brands, uh, but they're closing sixty stores nationally. Uh, originally, they said they were going to close twenty, so they're closing a, a few, um, and most of those are going to happen just after the uh, holiday shopping season. Mm. Okay, well, I mean that's better than before, but any any reason they up that number? Uh, I th- you know, in recent months, uh, I mean, I think it's been building for a while. Um, they've struggled. I think they've struggled with, you know, the, the same issues that, that have, that have plagued other brick and mortar retailers. Just their sales numbers are not as strong mm-hmm. and, you know, the, 
I think most pressingly in their most recent quarterly results for them, their, their second quarter, uh, they failed to reach, you know, their targets for revenues and same store sales. So uh, same store sales dropped 6.7%. You know, it's a pretty big drop. Um, and even though analysts had been expecting that it, it was uh, expecting a drop, it, it exceeded what, what, what people were expecting. So mm. they did a bit worse Nobody was expecting them to do well, and then they did worse. And I think now what they're going through is a whole process of figuring out how to kind of, you know, how what steps they could possibly take to both shore up their balance sheet and improve their operations. Yeah. Does I mean, what's the outlook from what you guys found? I mean, are do they have a good plan? Are they working with some outside folks to figure this out or? I mean, they brought in a new CEO, um, an interim CEO, in fact, after their permanent um, and in, who, who will be replaced by a new permanent CEO um, next month. So they're, they're 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 making some executive level changes. They're also doing things like they're going to try to refresh some of their stores. They're going to change their inventory strategy. I mean, cause you know, I mean, you go to Bed Bath and Beyond and it's just kind of like everything and, and millions of you know, different items. I mean, they're just, I think it could be a little bit too overwhelming to try to, mm-hmm. na- to navigate their stores at times. So I think they're looking to, to perhaps declutter that a bit, um, reduce the amount of inventory that's in the stores, try to make it a, a, an easier experience for shoppers. Um, so that's on the operational level, what they're looking at. The other way that they're looking to um Sure, the balance sheet is is trying to monetize their real estate by taking some of their company-owned stores and doing um, sale leaseback transactions, where you know sell sell the real estate to an investor and then sign and then and, and sign a leaseback. Um, uh, so that will reduce, you know, that generates some short-term cash, and then you just have to worry about you know. The, the lease that you negotiate on that end. So, and it gets them out of the, you know, operational side of the real estate too. So, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a, a pretty common strategy for um, retailers to, to look at, but it's, but they've definitely signaled that that's what, that's one thing they want to do to help generate some, some additional liquidity. Yeah. I'd shop there more often if they'd calm down the soap aisle, that just, it's <laughs> just too overwhelming. I, I, I've got allergies. I mean, they're not listening to me. I'm sure they've got other consultants that are, better at pinpointing but man yeah that soap aisle is just overwhelming so that's why i don't go there yeah i mean i think i mean even just thinking back i don't know five ten years there are a lot more retailers in other categories you know just these big box category killers mm-hmm. they all had similar business models big stores huge amount of inventory um try to try to churn a lot of volume and those are the kind of retail and a lot of those retailers are, are the ones that have have closed and gone out of business in the past few years. In some ways, Bed Bath & Beyond has been a survivor um, while while some of their more similar concepts in other categories have already gone out of business. The question is, can, you know, can they find a way to right the ship and, and succeed where some of these other chains have failed? Yeah, that's, um, that'll be interesting. So how long, what kind of time frame are you looking at, do you think, that they have to turn the uh, ship around? I mean, I think, you know, we just have to watch them over the next 12 to 24 months. I mean, just to put in context, I mean, you know, like we we did say 
the number of store closings went from 20 to 60, so it's a tripling, but they still operate over 1,500 stores. So we're not talking about like a dramatic reduction mm. in their overall footprint. Um, so I think that's, you know, if, if they were talking about bigger numbers, you know, that would be more of a red flag. You, you know, normally an important time to look at retailers is after the holiday shopping season. That's when historically a huge amount of store closings, historically a huge amount of store closings get announced right around uh, Martin Luther King Day, actually. That's kind of like the, um, I think more often than not, that's when we hear of the first big wave of store closings every year. It's because it's the first day that the stock market is closed after we get the final holiday sales numbers. So it's kind of like an, it's a good day to, to make those kind of announcements where you're not going to get like the immediate market panic. You give people mm-hmm. a day, you know, for the publicly traded retailers, you give them a day to absorb the news. You're still going to take a hit, but at least it's like you have like a, you know, a three day weekend time to break this bad news time for the market to kind of adjust their expectations and then hopefully kind of ride it out after that. So that's historically why that date is when it becomes, it's become like an unofficially important date on the retail calendar. Yeah, I'm just, I'm really glad, to be honest with you, that they're not going the way of some of these other stores we've talked about, uh, like Lululemon, uh, who loans things out. <laughs> I'd rather them not be loaning out uh, silverware, bedding, soap, uh, things like that. So that's that's good news. Yeah. I think they're on the right track by not doing that. Yeah, no, I think with commodity kind of <laughs> stuff, that definitely wouldn't work. Yeah, probably not. All right, is there anything else we need to know about this story, or are we moving on? No, that that's 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 takeaway for for that piece. So why don't we move on to what's going on with um, investment in casinos? Sure. All right. What is going on? So this was we just took a chance, um, took the opportunity to to look at what, what was happening. What, what kind of precipitated the look was that just a couple of months ago there were there was a almost nine billion dollar merger between Caesars Entertainment Corp and El Dorado Resorts. That involved it's and I think according to at least one of the experts we talked to, it's the second largest casino transaction in history. I think it's what it signals is that I mean, at least in my experience covering commercial real estate, the casino business has kind of been like its own insulated, different world. Companies that just specialize in that kind of thing, investors that just specialize in that kind of thing. Not a whole, not tons and tons of overlap with like traditional. Uh, hotel investors, and I think what we're seeing now is um, a little bit more mainstreaming of of, of that property type. That it's um, you know we we've got more REITs that are that are playing in the space, and it's uh, and they're performing well. So um, they're paying good dividends. It's becoming a potential way for real estate investors to diversify a little bit more if they want to actually try to invest in casinos. Got it. All right. Well, it sounds like a positive thing, right? Yes. Yeah, definitely positive. Good. Thing. So, you know, one of the interesting points is that over the last decade, uh, gaming revenue in the Mid-Atlantic region, for example, has increased to $11.5 billion, up from $8.4 billion about a decade ago. Uh, but the number of hotels has also increased to about 50, up from about 34 in the same time period. So that's just one example of the way that that the market has grown. That's just looking at the mid-Atlantic. And then when you look at Las Vegas, obviously, which, you know, obviously is the capital for this kind of thing, mm-hmm. hotel room occupancy has is almost 
averaging almost 90% in wow. you know, 2018 and into 2019. Uh, and that's up a low of about 84% 10 years ago. You know, it's just I get like with those kind of fundamentals like this, you could see why it would be an attractive, it could be a more attractive real estate investment play. I think, you know, one of the challenges in the past with casinos has always been you're just buying a regular hotel. You're just worried about the occupancies and the room rates, that kind of thing. When you add the casino piece in, then suddenly you're worried about, you know, the gaming revenues and operations as a whole oh, yeah. giant, complicated other thing. So it's a little bit hard, I think, if you're just like a real estate investor to just feel comfortable to be investing in casino hotels. I think what they've tried to do is um, segregate some of that some of that stuff out so that the the REITs just focus on the hotel part and then the retail and the gaming operations are another business entirely. Mm-hmm. So that way, if you're just looking at the casino hotel, they've got high occupancies, high occupancies, higher than other kinds of hotels. And then you remove some of that volatility that you might get from the gaming side. Gotcha. All right. So, I mean, is there anything else that we can really glean from this article? I know that we're going to encourage people to go to the website and read the articles for themselves because they'll glean, you know, their own things out of there. But is there anything else that we're going to share today? No, that's, those are, those are the main takeaways. So if people, you know, we talked to a few different experts who are quoted in the piece. So people should just go check on, check on the online version. All right, perfect. So what's our next story? So our last piece that we're touching on this week is just what's going on with uh, investment in medical office buildings. I think this is related to dynamics we've talked about in general in other episodes. With an aging population, there's with more consumption of healthcare services of various types, There, that's driven some of what we've talked about in the seniors housing space, it's also driving um, some dynamism in the, in the medical office building market. Mm-hmm. So in the first half of the year, almost $5 billion in medical office buildings changed hands. It's according to a company called Revista, which is um, they're a data company that specializes just in, in monitoring the medical office building market. And while that is not quite as high, it's as... 2017, 2018, it's not too far off. So we're looking at um, a third consecutive year of fairly high volume and steady volume and and strong cap rates um, targeting this sector. Hmm. So what does that say to the investor? For the investor, I think it's, um, you know, cap rates are averaging around 6.6%. So I think that's pretty comp- like pretty comparable to other sectors. It's it, it's more attractive. I think it's tighter than traditional office buildings, but I think that's because medical office buildings have a slightly better outlook than office buildings in general. But I think it just means that like there's, you know, a healthy amount of money in this space. We have REITs now that specialize in the medical office building sector who are active players, but it's just, I think it's just a dynamic part of the commercial real estate industry where we're going to continue to see activity. I think even if, there might even be slowdowns in other parts of commercial real estate. I could see the medical office sector being a little bit more stable. Mm-hmm. I think another another piece of the puzzle here is that medical office building completions in the U.S. average around 20 million square feet annually. So that's new inventory that's coming online. Wow. Um, there are tenants for the space. And so that means there's going to continue to be a decent amount of supply avail- that's available for investment. Yeah, I think it's an, it, 
it's interesting. I don't know if this is anywhere in this type of report. I'd love to see a study on how the aging population leads to increased medical space, right? Because as more and more people are aging, more and more seniors, there's more and more issues. Uh, we're going to need more doctors. I mean, that's all there is to it. That the, the baby boomers are, are what retiring at 10,000 people a day, if I'm not mistaken, something like that. Right. I've heard that statistic thrown around. So that's got to be doing something to the, to the amount of spaces being used for that. If it's not the most important, it's got to be pretty close to the most important factor, just the aging population and the need for services. I think the, the other thing that's, that's driving it is, more specialization. It sounds like there's more specialization and more kinds of things of like having medical services outside of traditional hospital or doctor's office settings. So that also I think is is driving it. There's some specialization among medical service providers that is creating some some of this demand too. When you say specialization, what do you mean? Can you give me an example? I mean, just a specialized well, think- type of healthcare. Yeah, I think there's some of that. Or, like, there's also those urgent health kind of clinics, which, are, you know, rather than going to a regular doctor's office or an emergency room where you can get a certain level of service, mm-hmm. medical service, you know, so there's those kind of things. I think there's other sort of outpatient um, kinds of procedures or testing or those kind of stuff that's 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 also being done now in some of the settings. So I, th- I think in general it's this idea that, Taking some stuff that would was maybe just part of the hospital system or part of going to your GP. Now you can go just to get an X-ray or just to do a certain kind of test or, or physical therapy, things like that mm, okay. that um, are available in more specialized kind of settings. And these are some of the tenants in some of these buildings. Because again, we're talking about like you know what we're talking about here are not hospitals. We're talking about medical office, so it's like a little bit you know we're not talking about the intensive kind of campus with every level of care we're talking about more outpatient kind of stuff mm-hmm. which means that they can fit in much smaller places right i mean it, so they can yeah. be in a uh, it's more convenient as far as where you're going to locate them because they don't need a sprawling campus like a hospital does right yeah and there might be some level of sp- special amenities that the building needs to be a medical office but not the level of the kind of stuff that you would need at a full-scale hospital. Exactly. They don't need a helipad, usually. Right. <laughs> we, we would hope not. Yeah. yeah. And I don't, really, I don't want a helipad, a helicopter yeah, no, taking me to an urgent care. <laughs> right. It's not a good and idea. Different kind of, yeah. And like, and for example, like the different volumes of medical waste. So you still exactly. have to be able to handle stuff, but like you know, you don't need necessarily like you know an the kinds of things that you have in hospitals. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's the, the word I was looking for and failing. Incinerators, right? You might, you don't probably don't need those. Although or, they're fun, or at least not the industrial yeah. guys. Want. <laughs> <laughs> it might be fun to operate. They just, it's just not a need. So yeah. All right. Is yeah. there anything else in this section that we need to cover that would be good for people to know uh, from you instead of just going to the article and, and taking a look for themselves? No, that's those are kind of the high level takeaways. The article itself does have some more numbers, some charts, some data from Revista in it. So. Mm-hmm. that's what I would refer people to. Well, David, these three stories, I know there's a lot more and we've, we've touched on it. People need to go to the articles and, and take a look. Uh, but also these are not the only articles that were written this week and you've got other headlines that you're going to tease us with. What are those? Yeah. Three other pieces I wanted to talk about real quick. One is we have some numbers about 
what's going on with CNBS issuance, volume for the year, uh, and how it's tracking with previous years, just uh, from, from, from data from, from some of the industry providers. So there's uh, a look at that for people to to um, click on. There's also a piece that we did a little bit more in depth that looks at how commercial real estate lenders are remaining firm with their underwriting standards mm-hmm. uh, in order to avoid risks down the line by if they hit, you know, if they get losing things too much. So just as an overview of what's going on with underwriting standards. And then lastly, um, a column from um, the Institute of Real Estate Management uh, about rent control and the and uh, what they see as some of the issues being created by some of the rent control uh, legislation that's been making its way through uh, legislatures in some cities and states around the country. All right, fantastic. And where do they find those links? Uh, NREIOnline.com. Perfect. Thank you, David, for your time today. This was great. Thank you, and uh, have a good weekend. You too. And thank you all for listening to the Common Area Podcast with David Bodemer. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when David comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your colleagues. Thanks again for listening today. For everyone at NREI, this is Eric Johnson inviting you back next week for all the news that matters to you. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Common Area Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of NREI or Informa. The content has been made available for information and educational purposes only.